Hi everyone, I'm Tanford Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a show that looks at some of the challenges leaders face today and what you can do about it to ensure you succeed at driving your organization's efforts forward. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tanford Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers both keynotes and corporate training events on various leadership topics like leadership development, organizational culture, and empowering employees. To learn more, visit our company's website at tanvernasir.com. That's T-A-N-V-E-E-R-N-A-S-E-E-R.com. And discover why we've been recognized by Inc. Magazine as not only one of their top leadership experts, but also one of their top leadership speakers. This episode has also been sponsored by UpCourses, an online learning platform where you'll find the Inspirational Leader course. Over 60% of employees say the number one thing they want from their leader is for them to be inspirational. Through this online course, you'll learn in just six weeks how to boost employee performance by being that inspirational leader they're hoping you'll be. In addition, UpCourses is offering an exclusive discount to Leadership Biz Cafe listeners of $300 off the regular price. That's a savings of 40%. So go to courses.upcourses.com. That's courses.uppcourses.com and enter the promo code TANVIR coupon. That's T A N V E E R C O U P O N to get $300 off this online leadership development course that will help you learn to be revered, remembered, and deliver results as that inspirational leader you have locked inside. And with that, let's meet my guest for this episode. Sarah Canaday. My value today in the leadership space or for anybody in a company is to have time to think because that's where the creativity and the innovation comes in. Over the course of our careers, many of us have developed strategies and habits that have certainly helped us to get promoted to leadership positions. We've even picked up some conventional wisdom from learning about what successful leaders did that helped them achieve their vision or goals. But is it possible that this conventional wisdom that many of us ascribe to could actually be impeding our abilities to succeed as leaders? That's the focus of this episode where I sit down to talk with leadership expert and author Sarah Canaday. After spending over 20 years in the corporate world, Sarah has made it the focus of her work to help leaders learn how to better apply their talents and knowledge when it comes to how they lead their teams and organizations. Sarah has been featured in a number of media outlets, including Forbes, The Huffington Post, Psychology Today, and CNBC. She has also authored her second book called Leadership Unchained, Defy Conventional Wisdom for Breakthrough Performance, which is what I'll be talking to Sarah about in this episode. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Now, Sarah, the title of your book provokes an interesting imagery in terms of today's leaders. While many of us can agree that leadership has become not only more demanding in terms of what the behaviors and communication styles are needed, not to mention the increasing complexities that an always-on digital world creates, I don't think many people would think of leadership as being something that's chained. So to help frame our conversation today, what are the chains you're referring to that leaders need to be break free from? Well, the, the chains I'm referring to are really what we know to be conventional wisdom, whether that wisdom came from learning and watching what our bosses did or what they told us to do, 
uh, as we climb the corporate ladder or whether it was what we studied in uh, books, in courses about leadership. So those chains really are sort of the old brand of leadership, if you will. Um, the things that we knew to be true uh, that are holding us back today. So Sarah, the first rule of leadership that you encourage leaders to break free from is this notion that to be successful, we have to keep moving. Really interesting that you brought this up as the first chain, that to stand still is problematic to getting things done. So why is this a problem for leaders to have? And after you share why, Sarah, I'll actually tell you about a conscious decision I made to stop doing that reading this chapter reminded me of and how this choice has actually impacted both my perception and productivity. Ooh, I'm, I'm very anxious to hear about that. Yeah. So, you know, I put myself in this mix, by the way, you know, I spent 15 years in the corporate world and much of that uh, in, a, in a leadership role, uh, you know, did the classic frontline leader, mid-level leader. And then when I exited, I was a VP of operations. And so in all of that progression, um, I was right there with everybody else, right? I adopted what I knew to be true, either through watching others, being told what to do by bosses or by reading. And for the most part, that conventional wisdom worked, uh, one of those being a bias for action. And I will say that I think I had an innate bias for action, and I had that from a very early age. And it was something that was always um, taught to me, even by my parents who were very hardworking, that, that to get things done, you have to be the one to take action. And it served me well, it, I was rewarded for it, but then things began to change, right? The landscape began to change, the territory of business began to change, and yet I was trying to use that same map, right? So instant decision-making or instant response demanded instant decision-making, um, keeping up, with that same bias for action was more difficult as I was asked to consume more information, take on more projects. So I was trying to meet those accelerated demands by pushing harder and doing more. And getting traction was eluding me and others um, that I, you know, saw and talked to over the years since I've been out of corporate, because that has been even more relevant today. And so I think that's why the, the bias for action can get in our way. It's almost a fight or flight response. We just do more of what we know. And the reason it's not working is because we are in order to make sense of all this that we're consuming, right? Data, information, um, more requests, in order to be more innovative, in order to both do more and think more, we have to take a strategic pause. And that pause can be daily or just once a week. But that pause is not this idea of mindfulness or meditation. And don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a fan of those practices, but this kind of strategic pause is when we're stopping long enough to let everything we've consumed in our week through meetings, through emails, through reading, let them marinate. 
it allows us to make connections where there may seemingly have not been connections before. It allows us to separate the wheat from the chaff. So that's why I think the bias for action is not always a good thing. Right, exactly. And as I said, sorry, when I was reading this chapter of your book, it made me remember something that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And that was how when someone asks us how we're doing, the typical reply we give is to talk about how busy we are. Now, at some point, I remember getting a call from a friend and they asked me how things were going. And I I just had that knee jerk reaction of just saying how busy I was. But I realized in that moment that it wasn't really true that while a few weeks back, it was certainly hectic and I felt overwhelmed. On that particular day, I was actually feeling pretty good. And so I corrected myself and told my friend how I was actually doing pretty good and went on to share why. And what was interesting about that was I noticed how telling someone I was doing well as opposed to being so busy actually made me feel good because it got me to focus on what was going right. And so ever since that conversation, when people ask me how things are going, I've become very intentional about thinking about what's going well and sharing that because it does create this ripple effect where the conversation becomes more positive and engaging. So in many ways, I'm doing that strategic pause instead of just reacting, of trying to think of what's the response I want to give because of what's the conversation I want to have. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because one thing I noted when I stopped saying how busy I was is how I created that space you're talking about in my mind. And I could tell you looking back, I can appreciate how this simple perception of busyness really pollutes your mind where you can actually feel guilty in those moments where you're not doing something. Like, how can I feel like I'm making progress if I'm just sitting here taking that strategic pause? That there's so much that needs to be done, I better snap out of this. And yet this is exactly what leaders should be doing. Right, and and I remember having a mantra uh, pinned to my desk at one point, but the essence of the mantra was something like, you know, I, I'm not, my value is not equal to being a doer, right? I'm so used to being a doer and just what you said is true. The minute I slowed down or had space, I felt like I wasn't being productive and therefore would not be of value to anyone. And that can't be further from the truth, again, because my value today in the leadership space or for anybody in a company is to have time to think, because that's where the creativity and the innovation comes in. Um, And so it absolutely is, is beneficial. Yeah. And the other interesting thing that this brought to mind was how in some of the corporate trainings and keynote sessions I've had with leaders is that some of them would talk about a frustration they had where they felt if, well, if I don't take action, I'm going to hear from some of my employees that this means that I don't care enough about the issue to want to do something about it. But at the same time, they do realize that sometimes when they do take some form of action and things don't go to plan, there'll be segments of their employee base that'll start to criticize the senior leadership that they acted too quickly without taking time to understand the nuances of the situation because they don't care. And so for some leaders, it feels as though you're in this no-win scenario. And so what I've often advised leaders in these sessions that we have to separate what we're communicating in terms of action versus intent, to your point of that idea that we have to be constantly doing And so I often point out to them that instead of succumbing to this compelling need to do something that we shouldn't, in my case, I always tell them that we should take time 
to not only reflect and review, but to inform your employees of what it is you're trying to do and why. So to your point about that strategic thinking of why is this measure necessary or what would be the best approach to take. And obviously there are going to be some employees who will feel that this is urgent and we need to get going and we can't wait. But as a leader, I think this is where we need to step up and provide greater clarity by listening to your employees' concerns and then pivoting their perception of the situation so they can understand where you're coming from. Now, they might not still agree with you, but at least you've created that greater clarity about your behaviors and actions. And I think that's what's important for leaders to understand when we're talking about the strategic pause, about stopping this habit or behavior of wanting to do something in favor of that strategic pause. It's really about providing greater clarity to those you lead. Yes. Yes, it is. And I think that clarity, or at least that time for clarity, may look different for different people. You know, for me, it may be every Friday morning, I go to my favorite coffee shop and I review everything I've consumed that week. I think about the meetings I've attended. I look at my notes. I look at what I've read or heard articles, blog posts, um, what the outcomes were, what my to-dos are. And I just sort of get a high level picture of everything. And it helps me bookend to some degree that week, but also informs me moving forward. You know, what what is that pivot giving me? What can I do moving forward? Now, some people, that doesn't work for them. That is a very anxiety-driven idea. And so for them, it may be their morning bike ride or their morning run. I hear it all the time that 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 movement is what allows some of the things that have been in their mind to start filing in some sort of order. And they come up with their best ideas when they're on their bike uh, because they're free from the constraints of being interrupted of their normal habitat. So that clarity can come in different in different ways. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic point you bring up, Sarah, because I think for many people, and certainly my experience is when people come and ask, there's always that hope for some sort of recipe. What's the standard recipe here that I should apply? But as you point out, it's going to differ from person to person. And I think you've elucidated exactly what people can find is where are those moments where you find you're able to kind of figure things out. Oh, I think I know what's the best way to tackle this situation to solve this problem, or here's an untapped opportunity. Now, the next chain you write about that leaders need to break themselves from is our over-reliance on how we perceive things. And it's something that we see today is quite common, especially on very social media channels that in some cases have become really more like these echo chambers, thanks to our tendency to follow or connect with people who echo or mirror our own viewpoints, whether that be in terms of politics, social issues, or even the shows we watch and the music we listen to. While we can all appreciate how these echo chambers can amplify divisions, in terms of leadership, the problem is how this can adversely impact the way we make decisions. And you write how successful leaders employ a rather unorthodox approach to addressing these biases that we all inherently have. Yes. Um, And, you know, I think we all talk about collaboration and we, we see it as bringing in, uh, well, first of all, we see it as these, you know, open offices and beanbag chairs and 
um, all the conditions we can create to be more collaborative. And then we bring in um, our teams and we hope that we've hired uh, from a diverse set, um, but we really don't look at everything we can do to ensure that we are expanding our perspective. And that could be, you know, we, we could have five people on our team that come from completely diverse backgrounds, but that is not going to give you a diverse perspective if everybody on that team has the same thinking. Right. Right. So it's as much about cognitive diversity as it is diverse backgrounds. Right. So so that's that's one uh, perspective here. Um, the other is then we tend to uh, talk to designers, for example, about uh, design problems. We, we talk to marketers about marketing and we talk to sales about sales um you know, uh, you know, maybe price modeling, but we don't go the extra step of bringing in somebody who is completely foreign to what it is we're doing from a different, completely different department or division to shake things up, to shake up our thinking so that we can expand our perspective and see things from a completely different lens. So, you know, I think that, you know, leaders, you know, on the one hand, should be con convicted uh, and, and feel very confident about their perspective based on their experience, based on their knowledge. But I think you reach a point at which if you've really evolved as a leader, you're willing to put those perspectives and those experiences aside and really evolve and look at some completely counter perspectives and let those inform you as much as your experience and your know-how. Right. And there's another example you gave of how we can do this, which I really liked, which was this idea of seeking to disprove our own perspective or understanding of things, because I think it actually builds on what we were discussing before about gaining clarity. Again, I think there's this misguided notion out there that whenever I read articles about how leaders can create greater clarity, where they put the onus on employees not getting what their boss is trying to say or do. I mean, if we're serious about leadership being about nurturing relationships, then that means that the communication needs to be two-way. And that means as we as leaders need to gain clarity about how our employees experience things. And that's what this is all about, making sure that the actions and decisions you're making are the best because you're not just looking at the situation based on what you know, or as you pointed out, based on which group you're asking or soliciting information from, but you're really reaching out to all the different facets or different groups within your organization because you want to make sure that you are exposing those blind spots in your decision-making process that some of your employees might be able to shine a light on. And to be clear here, Sarah, we're not saying that leaders are, for the most part, wrong. Rather, this is about finding the best course of action, whether that's based on your own understanding or what you learn from seeking out those who have divergent or opposing perspectives. Right. And, and you know, this works not just for leaders. This, this works for, you know, any number of professionals and even those of us who are, you know, running companies on our own or self-employed. I benefit greatly from mastermind groups 
And I often seek a mastermind group that doesn't necessarily uh, comprise of the same type of consultant and um, speaker or leadership developer as myself. I, I, I like the idea of, of masterminding with people from completely different industries, again, so that I can get a, a better understanding of how I can apply something outside of my industry, that it may work for me. Now, Sarah, we've talked about our perceptual biases and the importance of building that cognitive diversity that you mentioned earlier in your workforce. And to be honest, I'm sure there's some listeners that might be listening right now who are thinking they're already aware of and doing this. But let's be frank, this could just be our biases trying to confirm that we're already doing what we think we should be doing. So aside from those mastermind groups and getting into the nuts and bolts here, what measures should leaders be doing to break free from this perceptual bias that can impact their decision making? What tangible things can they be doing in-house to make sure that they are overcoming this? Well, there's a couple of things. One thing that I tell leaders is this, and I've alluded to it before, but think about your staff meetings um, and the idea that maybe you invite somebody, a leader from a completely different division to your staff meeting and ask them to share what they're working on. What are their goals? How do they see the connection between what they're doing and the company's overarching objectives? And that way, you know, the people on your team then are not just looking at what's important, what are our goals, but what are the goals outside of our team and how are there these connections between all of us, right? Right. So that, that's one idea. There's a couple others. Um, I tell leaders all the time to network with colleagues outside of their industry who can give them, you know, access to different approaches and ideas. Um you know, read, read about things. Maybe you're used to reading your own industry articles or briefs. Um, try on the idea of reading some briefs or articles in a completely different industry. Maybe, um, maybe it's still your, your line of work, but in a different industry. And that might inform an idea or a perspective. Um, you know, I, I think, one of the big things for leaders is is what I call, you know, be a perspective expander for your own team. So if you've gathered some kind of counterintuitive ideas or insights, um, challenge your team to think about those, um, d deliver some of them, share them and see what their thoughts are on these kind of counterintuitive approaches or, or you know, shake, shake them up, if you will. Um, and I mean, I think the other thing is just give yourself a filter, right? Ask yourself questions. Um, did I jump to a conclusion here? Um, you know, <laughs> did I consider whether my ideas or perspectives might be wrong or out of date in a particular situation? Um, is there any information that can discredit my idea or approach? Um, and what have I done to put myself in a position to see things through a different lens. That's probably the most important thing. You know, Sarah, as you were talking, there's a, a very successful company that we're all familiar with that immediately came to mind because this is exactly their approach of bringing in people from different teams and stuff. And we got a project and that's Pixar. Pixar is renowned for when they're developing their stories and their movies 
to not just say, well, we're going to silo the different levels of the work. Okay, when it comes to story conceptualization, we're going to focus on the writers and the creative types. And then when it comes to the character development, we're going to get the animators and so forth. They really incorporate and involve everyone in the organization. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they're the animator or someone who works in their warehouse, taking care of all their computing supplies and so forth. Everyone has a direct role to play. So I think that's a great example that really encapsulates what you've been saying here about bringing in people on the team. Because I know some people might be thinking, yeah, but if I bring someone in, let's say we're having a strategic planning meeting and we bring someone in from accounting, they might not be thinking in the context that we are, but that's all the more reason to bring them in because they can shed light on an aspect that you might not have considered and help you pivot to say, well, what about that? How can we approach that? But I think it's also important in order to do that, that we have to create that environment. And I like that idea that you said of the leader taking the initiative of showing people I want to expand our perspective, that you're presenting that first so that environment is created so that people feel comfortable to speak up. Even if they're the accountant at a marketing meeting, they don't have any hesitation because they're the odd one out to actually share their insights because they realize that's what's being asked of them in that moment. Exactly. Exactly. I want to jump ahead here, Sarah, to another chapter you write about in your book where you talk about how leaders should stop over-relying on hard data when making decisions. Now, everyone's familiar with the concept of big data and how not only it's becoming a key pillar to developing insights into customer behaviors and motivations, but how it's also underlying the fields of AI and machine learning. Now, in your chapter, you make the case that leaders shouldn't simply rely on hard data alone, but use it as let's say one of the tools leaders have at their disposal to help understand and decipher situation and the best route to take going forward. And I can tell you that as I was reading this chapter, I couldn't help but think of the dynamic that exists between the characters of Kirk, Spock, and Dr. McCoy in Star Trek. Namely, how in so many of the original series episodes, you would actually see Kirk soliciting input from his science officer Spock and his medical officer McCoy to help figure out what might be the most prudent course of action to take, which again mirrors what we were just discussing about bringing in those divergent perspectives to help inform your decision-making process. But what was interesting is how a couple of times Kirk would end up making a decision that Spock, the rational, logically-driven science officer, would literally arch his eyebrows at because based on the hard data at hand, what Kirk did wasn't necessarily the right or best course of action. And yet when Spock would see that Kirk's approach actually worked and he asks Kirk, how did he know? Kirk would often say he had a hunch that this was the right action to take. So I'd love for you to share outside of the science fiction realm of Star Trek, why is this a prudent course of action for leaders to take? and what measures they can take to help them with this. Yeah, so I love that story. Um, so I'm gonna go on record to say that, you know, I think leaders can can take, take heart in knowing that what I'm suggesting is not just to rely on a hunch. It, although, you know, I think gut instinct, uh, those are very valuable and I think based on experience could be very informative. What I'm proposing is that leaders value soft intelligence as much as they do hard data. And soft intelligence is often the immeasurable, right? They are the things that we can't see in the data. Um, they are 
you know, customers give us certain indicators or reviews on our service or our products, but we don't know the nuances of why they gave us an eight out of 10 or a five out of 10. Um, we need to be able to watch and observe our customers in their natural habitats using our products or services. So we better understand um, why they say one thing perhaps on a customer inquiry, but then do another. Um, and this happens often to companies uh, that are very perplexed um, and, and they sometimes make decisions that, that backfire. Um, I think the most compelling thing that I remembered in my research was a study that was done by an ethnographer and her name was Trisha Wang. And um, in her work as an ethnographer, which by the way is, is like a cultural, it is, it's a cultural anthropologist. She was hired by Nokia back in 2009 and her job was to identify market trends um, and potential new customers um, by looking at their behaviors in terms of cell phone usage. Now, in this case, she was assigned specifically to study the preferences and habits of low income consumers in China. So as an anthropologist, as an ethnographer would do, she spent several years living with Chinese migrants. I mean, she she worked as a street vendor selling dumplings. She interacted and observed people, people by going to the neighborhood Internet cafes. And she asked a lot of questions. Um, she got a lot of insights um, and she discovered something that she didn't quite anticipate. Um, what she discovered was even with their very limited income, these uh, Chinese migrants were so enamored with smartphones that they would sacrifice half of everything they earned in a month just to have one. Um, and, you know, she she found that this was something that everybody wanted. The demand was very high. Um, she went back to the folks at Nokia, the executives who hired her and was very excited to share this information with them, only to discover that they didn't really take her information in. Um, to them, it was too small of a data set, right? Compared to the mounds of data, uh, quantitative data that they had already collected. Um, and so they, they didn't really give it a lot of credence. Um, and they continued to produce full-featured smartphones for high-end users. And we know what happened to Nokia. Right. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, that, that sounds like a, a very, wow, you know, that, that may have been a one-off case, but I can tell you it's not. It happens every day on a big scale or on a small scale. Um, we have become so enamored with big, sexy data that we are dismissing the human factor, the soft intelligence. So, you know, you asked me, what can leaders do to ensure this balance of, you know, honoring and valuing the data, but not being completely driven by it? Um, and one of those things is to just, you know, 
sit back and instead of automatically accepting the data and the analysis that comes with the data, you know, make sure that you're confident that the data reveals the entire picture, that there's nothing missing, including that human factor or that soft intelligence. Um, ask yourself, do I trust the field research? Is it up to date? Um, did the very people who are being measured or tracked have a say in how the data mining process would happen from the very get-go? Um, have I gotten out and to see how my customers are actually using my products and services? And by the way, this isn't just for customers. I say the same thing about your employees, right? We, we can you know, we can look to talent talent management programs and, and data sources to tell us what our customers are, or what our employees are experiencing, but it's still incumbent upon us as leaders to get out there and actually ask people um, and, and observe them. Um, you know, stories. H have I solicited stories from the very people I'm trying to understand, be it my employees or the customers? Um, those are the things that I think leaders can do. Right. And, you know, just to build on the example you gave of Nokia and how you point out how, look, it's not an outlier. Cause I mean, that's easy for us then to disregard is how, and again, building on what we had just talked about in terms of building our cognitive diversity by seeking out, uh, different fields of interest, different fields of information so that we could bring it into our own understanding. There were two interesting studies that came out from the field of AI and another one for facial recognition technology. So this is the, really the cutting edge of today's technology. So these are the great fields where we can see what's coming ahead and also the challenges that we have to be ready for. In terms of the facial recognition software, researchers conducted a study where they found that they couldn't recognize dark-skinned individuals as people. They would put their faces to the camera and the computer could not recognize it as being a person. And so they realized there's a clear bias in how these softwares were being coded. Similarly, there was another study that was showing how with some of the autonomous vehicles that are currently being tested, again, there's a problem with them not identifying non-white individuals as being people. See, when they would put these dummies on the street to test them, they would actually drive right past them, right over them at times. And so they were saying, well, clearly there is this unseen bias that's in the software that we're not recognizing. But this is big data, right? This is the very thing that we're all enamored with saying, well, this is going to help us understand insights about our customers or about our employees, about their needs, about what it is that they want from us. But you can see in these two examples, which again, this is the cutting edge field of technology. Right. And they are already discovering these problems, which they didn't even realize were there. So we can see that big data really isn't a magic pill that's somehow going to simplify our decisions. But as we're pointing out, it's really something we should consider more a means to help gain, going back to the point I made at the start of our conversation, greater clarity about the best choices we as leaders need to take to help our employees achieve our shared results, especially recognizing that there are some serious gaps in the information that we're collecting that's not quite giving us the full picture. But it's certainly going to help elucidate things, but we shouldn't over rely on that. Right. 
Now, before we wrap things up, Sarah, I'd like to ask you one more question here. I know there's a few more behaviors that you write about that leaders need to unchain themselves from, but I'm wondering in the scope of what we discussed today, what's the one take-home point you'd like to leave our listeners with as they consider some of the ideas we discussed today and how it impacts the way they'll lead going forward? Well, I think all of these are somewhat counterintuitive, right? Right. I mean, because we we know these things to be true to be helpful in some cases tools um, and approaches and practices that that help us get ahead and so i would just you know ask leaders to think about how is it that they're tackling and keeping up the pace of this quicker response time the always on push harder and ask themselves if what they're doing is working now, right? And really, you know, stop to think about it. Um, and these are habits. They're, they're hard to break. And, and they're, they're good habits. I'm just saying they need to be balanced with, uh, with their counterintuitive um, approaches, right? And so I would just ask leaders to think about, you know, what is it that they're doing and is it working? Is is doing more, is being more tethered to your smart devices the answer? And by the way, is that, are you feeling that you are managing your work and then it's meaningful? If you can answer both those questions and feel very good and confident, then have at it. Keep going, you're doing the right thing. If there's a sense that you've lost the meaning behind being a leader and that it's not nearly as manageable, then I would implore you to to consider some of these counterintuitive practices. I especially like how you end your book pointing out how these measures, that they're not inherently bad, but merely something we need to pay attention to that we're not doing all the time. And I think your message here also helps to give our listeners that context and clarity in terms of how to address these issues we discussed so they can become a better and more successful leader in the organization, one that is actually finding meaning in what they do and hopefully also providing meaning for those that they lead. So thanks for coming on my show to share your insights with my listeners. I really appreciated it. Oh, my pleasure. Some interesting food for thought from my guest Sarah Canaday, and there's plenty more in her book. So to learn more about Sarah's book, Leadership Unchained, along with some articles that touch on some of the ideas that we discussed in today's episode, Check out the show notes for this episode at tanvernasir.com slash LBC. That's T-A-N-V-E-E-R-N-A-S-E-E-R.com slash L-B-C. And that's a wrap for another episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. And again, this episode has been sponsored by UpCourses, an online learning platform where you'll find the Inspirational Leader Course. Remember, over 60% of employees say the number one thing they want from their leader is for them to be inspirational. Through this online course, you'll learn in just six weeks how to boost employee performance by being that inspirational leader they're hoping you'll be. And don't forget, UpCourses is offering an exclusive discount to Leadership Biz Cafe listeners of $300 off their regular price, a savings of 40%. So go to courses.upcourses.com, that's courses.uppcourses.com, and enter the promo code Tanvir Coupon. That's T-A-N-V-E-E-R 
C-O-U-P-O-N to get $300 off this online leadership development course that will help you learn to be revered, remembered, and deliver results as that inspirational leader you have locked inside. Now, if you have any questions or comments, drop me a note through the contact form on my website. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you find and listen to this show. And don't forget, you can now also listen to this show on Spotify as well. You can find links to subscribe to these platforms on the podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And with that, I'm Tavernasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Mm-hmm.